Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. I urge you all today, especially today during these times of chaos and war, to love yourself without reservations and to love each other without restraint. Unless you're into leather. Margaret Cho. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode 9. Well, I think you have the starting line of the podcast already prepared. Do we want to do our little introductions? Like, I'm M. I'm G. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. Yes, this is our third kinky episode, and I think M wants to say something to our audience. So, I was thinking, G, we could... Bring a little more soul to the podcast, <laughs> because today's topic is going to be on boot blacking and leather culture. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. We're going to uh, polish this episode. Maybe I should have left that for the end. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find something punny for the heel of our episode. Ooh. Don't know if I can top that one. <laughs> I'm afraid we're about to bottom out in all these puns. (laughs) Well, that's okay. We have a lot of stuff to talk about here. And puns might naturally arise as we progress. But what were we talking about, Em? (laughs) Besides puns. Boot blacking. Boot blacking and leather culture. Yes. We're going to be talking about leather culture, boot blacking, a little bit of the history behind the leather culture in general. Sort of, you know, what... Is boot blacking kinky or what is it? You know, mm-hmm. what does it look like in the context of the kink scene? What does it look like in the context of the broader leather community? Yeah. So, for our listeners who maybe didn't listen to our first episode, which I highly recommend you listen to our first episode, what is boot blacking, M? Well, you know, boot blacking is a little bit of a misnomer. Okay. Uh, because I think people hear boot blacking and they go, oh, you shine black boots. Yes. And that's a reasonable assumption that you would get from the phrase boot blacking. Mm-hmm. However, boot blacking is not just to do with boots. It's not just to do with black leather. We work on all sorts of different colors of leather. And we don't just work on boots. We work on vests, jackets, pants. And basically, it's the caring, conditioning, polishing of leather. So not all leather gets polished. And I feel like that's another thing people who aren't familiar with boot blacking, they just assume all leather gets kind of polished. Yes. But some of it is conditioned. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it helps take care of the leather. Mm -hmm. That helps preserve it. Yes. And so this is uh, something that you might see in the kink community at different events. And we also, in, in addition to all of Those other things that we work on, we also work on floggers, collars, pretty much anything leather. And even we we even work on stuff that's not leather. So sometimes people work on latex. Sometimes people work on vegan leather. Yeah, I mean, I assume you have, I assume as a boot black in the scene, you also have to be at least somewhat familiar with the various forms of of fake leather out there, which includes vegan leather, but also just pleather, I think. You have to know that it's not leather and treat it and slightly treat it differently. Like, yes, absolutely. And, but I think an important part of, of boot blacking in general, 
and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it is a very service-oriented kink, and at least part of, at least my understanding, part of the attraction of boot blacking is that you are taking care of leather that is on a person. Now, I understand you don't, that doesn't, that's not a necessary requirement. I've known people who, like, brought leather messenger bags. I was like, could you take care of this? And you can't, obviously can't really take care of a messenger bag on a person. <laughs> but, I mean, am I off base here, or? No, you're not off base, and that's certainly the way that I was introduced to boot blacking. I came into the community, and I was definitely, like, a service sub, and the person that I was in service to at the time introduced me to boot blacking as a way to provide service to him and so it's definitely can be service oriented and but it's not for everybody so Mm -hmm. i think you kind of alluded to that that of course there are situations or there are people who aren't drawn to the service aspect of it it could just be a way for them to give back to the community yes um and also i've known you know vegan boot blacks who just really feel like they are honoring the animals that have given themselves for these articles of clothing or toys And so they're honoring them by, you know, preserving the leather. So that means that you won't have to go and buy a new pair of boots. So in a, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a fascinating take on that. Yeah. And I really value that perspective. So I do think that it can be very service oriented. And for me, it is very service oriented, but it, it can be, it can come in all sorts of forms. So, and now I know that you've had some experience getting your boots done by boot blacks, right? Mm hmm. Yes, I I have some very expensive boots that I bought at a Renaissance fair when I was drunk. <laughs> so drunk impulse buying. Drunk impulse buying. There's no other purchasing experience quite like it, <laughs> especially when you have to put the boots on layaway. Uh, yeah. So yes, I have these very very nice boots, which I uh, will get blacked at kink events, partially because there's very certain. I, I don't get so much, uh, I know there's some people who are sort of really into the topping aspect of a boot black, of like being a person who receives this attention and care to detail, which I don't think I get that kind of charge out of it. But it's just very nice to have somebody like take care of your boots, pay very good attention to them. And also, you know, it offloads that brain power and responsibility for me, who's probably not going to do as good of a job. And it's just very, and also they're, they're calf high boots. It's just nice to get kind of like. Nice little massage. A little calf massage as somebody's taking care of your boots. Um, yes, it's an amazing experience. But I've also just taken like my regular, like my regular shoes. Of course. Yeah. Like, like M said, it doesn't have to be boots. And the boots that I have are not black. They are a combination of brown and brown and red color but yeah i you know i've just taken regular shoes like well these are leather shoes and it'd be good if somebody took care of them so i'm just going to go to the boot black stand but yeah so you don't have to get a specific charge out of it to use the boot black stand right it's more i mean really the boot black stand and just for our our listeners who maybe haven't been to kink events where they had a boot black stand you know it sort of looks like a shoe shine stand and there are normally like at least one but often two or even three if it's a really big event boot blacks who are kind of at the stand and a lot of people there i mean it's just it's really like a client relationship so like yeah it is kind of like business mm-hmm. when we're on the stand so unless we know that person really well and personally and we have a relationship with them it's very much a matter of fact and the exchange is not going to be particularly charged yeah people really just want to come and get their leather done 
Now, and some of them might have that internal charge that they really enjoy receiving the service and that's fine. But, you know, for for a lot of boot blacks and for a lot of people who come to the stand, a lot of it is giving back to the community because we raise money for charity. And so typically at events, you know, 50% of our tips go to charity. And I used to run boot black stands. And so my preferred charity to donate to was the Network La Red, which is a volunteer run organization to end abuse in the LGBTQ poly and kink communities. Okay. And they're one of the best organizations that I have found. So I really appreciate their approach. And if you want to look them up, maybe we can link to their website. Yeah, um, we can link to their website in the show, the show notes. notes. So that's the Network Lared. And as far as I am concerned, they are an entirely bilingual organization as well. So Spanish English, mm-hmm. which is really great. So there's that aspect to it, of it. And there's also this etiquette that you have to be aware of because... Yes. Yeah. If you if you go to a boot black stand at a big event, you are expected to tip. Unlike a lot of other kinky activities, boot blacks are using expendable resources that can't like, you know, I don't have to worry about my flogger like not being usable after one scene. They're using expendable resources which they're gonna to have to repurchase. They're also giving their time for a service, which they might they might get their own charge out of it, or it just might be they want to provide a service back to the community. But you are expected to tip, and usually there will be a a sheet with recommended tip amounts, depending on what item you are bringing. And also, if you're bringing an unusual item, I think you can just talk to the boot black as like, what be a good tip for this? And like M said, oftentimes at these events, they're splitting their tips between themselves and with a charity that they are donating to. Yeah, so uh, tipping is definitely important, and please tip your boot blacks if you can. That being said, we don't turn anybody away. So if you are really in need of some leather care, but you just can't afford a tip, talk to us. We'd probably be happy to work on your leather anyway. However, you know, we do reserve the right to turn anybody away from this stand if you're, you know, an asshole or rude, or we really just don't know how to care for your leather. So those would be the moments where we would definitely turn somebody away. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to turn anybody away just on the basis that they don't have money. However, it is kind of expected that you will tip. Yes. So we we started talking about this a little bit, this idea of, is it kinky? Is it not? Some people get a, a charge. For some people, it's a mm-hmm. fetish. Maybe boots are the fetish in particular. Maybe the service is the kink. Mm-hmm. So, Em. Yes, G. I guess the question I have for you is, we've talked about the various ways that boot blacking can be service-oriented, you can get charge out of it, but in what way is, how does boot blacking affect you? Is it kinky, or is it just a service for the community? I think in a previous episode, you described, like, you getting a charge out of it. For me, it can be both. It can just be for the community, but it definitely can be kinky, too, and I definitely do get a charge out of it. So in one-on-one scenes with boot blacking partners or with play partners that I'm doing a boot blacking scene with, it can be very intimate depending on what the person wants to do and what we agree to. So I like massaging the leather and licking the leather, doing some leather worship while I boot black in that sort of intimate space. And a boot blacking scene is also highly service oriented for me. So especially if I have a particular DS dynamic with the person, I may feel more submissive and that can come out in my body language as well as referring to my partner with some kind of like a respectful title like sir, ma'am, or one of my favorite non-binary titles, your grace. 
Okay, can you can you go a little bit more into that? Because that's an interesting title to use, even in the just non-binary context. Yeah, so I think I've definitely seen non-binary people post these little threads where they're like, what are some good non-binary alternatives to sir ma'am and mm-hmm. i i see a lot of people will say like your majesty your highness uh you know like captain or whatever boss you know and i just really like your grace i think it has an elegance okay to it and okay. i also like to be called your grace so <laughs> okay that's nice too your lordship okay although that's a little bit gendered so maybe yes. not your ladyship yeah so there's sort of this nice androgynous or non-binary kind of feel to your grace. It could refer to anyone. So that is my choice if I'm not sure what the person wants to be called or if we have explicitly negotiated that or, yeah. Okay. I mean, you say your grace, I immediately think like a a ducal title. It is a little bit, yeah. Yeah, either a duke or a duchess. Yes, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is non-binary, your grace. Your grace. Yes. Yeah. I, I'd love to boot black your shoes, your grace. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if the other person wants to include some pain, too, so, like, yes, you keep saying it's, like, service-oriented and there is this charge, right, but can also have some pain. So there's a lot of opportunity for boot-stomping, kicking, hair-grabbing, rough body play while the person is blacking. So that's a lot of fun, too. So one of the things I like to do is boot stomping. Have you ever blacked somebody's boots as they were stomping on you? I mean, it's sort of intermittent. Like, you have to kind of stop blacking. Okay. That makes more sense. While the person... (laughs) Yeah, and you can also, like, the person can sort of dig in. So, like, let's just say you're sitting there doing their boots Mm -hmm. or you're kneeling. The person can sort of dig their boot into your thigh. Yeah. Press their boot into your thigh or even like kick the sides of your thighs. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you can do a little bit while the person is blacking. And then you can also take moments where you sort of take a pause from the actual blacking for some more boot stompy action. Okay. And there's also some good, you know, if you're in a humiliation play, there's also some good moments for that. So I also like to incorporate that if the person is into that as well. But so this has all been like, you know, as a bottom mm-hmm. sort of what it's like to boot black, but also boot blacks can be tops. Okay. And so I've topped someone once where I tied them to my boot black chair uh, <laughs> and I b- blindfolded them, you know, gave them a nice polish slap. I rubbed the polish all over black polish all over my hand, yeah. slap them across the face. <laughs> you know, I might smudge some of it on myself, too, because that's just fun. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you can use the backs of the buffing brushes that as, you boot black yeah. as like an implement to hit people with. Uh, what is that? We are interrupting yet again for weird sounds. Sorry about that. No worries, G. Seems to be a watch. It is a watch. It's a watch I should probably throw away because I think it's nearly useless to me now. But you're saying about topping. Yeah, at... topping as a boot black. Yeah. Brush. The back of a brush can be... The back be. of the brush can definitely be used. It, it kind of is... It's a wooden kind of plank normally mm-hmm. um, that has the bristles on the other side. Yeah. And it, it's really great. You can definitely slap someone with it, hit them with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you wanted to, and I've done this, I've actually used the bristles to buff someone's face. Okay. That makes sense. So, like, you know, if I've gotten some polish on their face now from that <laughs> nice polish slap, yeah. I can go ahead and just, like, you know, use those bristles and rub it. Get, all in their get face. some real exfoliation going. Yeah, it's a really great exfoliator. 
<laughs> yeah, so there's definitely ways to top end bottom or switch with boot blocking. Yes. But I think for the most part it is seen as a bottoming activity. It is seen that way, but I, I really want to challenge that. Okay. I really want people to see and value that there are boot blacks who are tops. There are boot blacks who top in a boot blocking context. Mm-hmm. Boot blacks can be switches. They can be doms. They can be, you know, they don't just have to be the service sub that we think of when we think of boot blocking. Okay. And, you know, we're all about challenging stereotypes and preconceptions on this podcast. Absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about this, but how did you actually get started into boot blocking? Like... I remember you saying that was like one of the first things you did when you got into the kink scene, but would you care to tell us how that came about? You've also mentioned like a boy persona. In fact, I think the first time I met you was in the boy persona. Yep. Yeah. So this boy persona that I constructed, and we talked a little bit about this in our tr- in the trans episode mm-hmm. on imposter syndrome and, and being trans. And I talked about my transgender journey. And for me, boot blacking was an instant connection to that boy persona. So I did find boot blacking pretty quickly in the scene. Somebody that I was serving, like I said at the time, introduced it to me. And then it sort of grew into a passion from there. I started boot blacking at events um, and boot blocking with partners. And I really found that the energy that I felt when I was boot blocking was that of a boy. Okay. And it's hard to explain that to someone who has never had that experience, but I just knew like when I was boot blocking, I just felt very male. And there's a strong link between boot blocking and leather culture, and leather culture is kind of historically tied up in gay male culture. Yes. So because of that, I think that there was always that connection for me. Okay. And that's not to say that, you know, femmes can't boot black. And even, I mean, sometimes I do present as femme when I boot black. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of identify as a soft femme. And so there's still plenty of space to be feminine and boot blocking. But just uh, my personal experience, it really affirmed my gender identity. Okay. So I think we're going to, I think that's a good transition to our next topic, which we're going to be talking about leather culture. Leather culture, right. So yeah, so boot blocking is definitely tied up in leather culture. Yes. And something that we, we wanted to talk about was the hanky code. Yes. So what is your opinion of the hanky code? What is the hanky code, G? So the hanky code is a system used to sort of indicate your interests in particular activities. So the way that it started out, as far as we can tell, and it is a little hard to pinpoint these things in queer history and to nail down details because from the 1940s up until the 1980s, heck, you can argue up until the 1990s, it was still very problematic to be openly queer. And being queer was still an oppressed minority. So it's a little hard to nail down these kind of exact details about where these things came from. But I think it's generally acknowledged that the hanky code came from the gay culture in either San Francisco or New York, or it was imported from San Francisco to New York. And it was sort of a way to indicate, one, that you were gay, and two, what kind of activities you were into. So the hanky code is using different colored handkerchiefs and strategically placing them either in your left back pocket or your right back pocket to indicate what activities you want to top for and want to bottom for. Now, if I remember correctly, the left side is stuff that you want to top for and right side is what you want to bottom for. Yes. Obviously, This has uh, changed and expanded since the original conception of the hanky code. 
nowadays I think it's just generally accepted that if you are in the kink scene, you can just tie off handkerchiefs wherever you want on either your left or your right side, and it'd be generally acknowledged what it meant. However, Evan and myself were talking about this before the podcast, and I think the expanded hanky code is very different from the original conception of the hanky code. Yeah, you had noted that there was a Kelly Green and a Hunter Green, and you yes. were like, well, how are you supposed to tell the difference when you're in a busy nightclub and... A dimly lit busy nightclub. Whatever. You know, first of all, I don't know what Kelly Green off the top of my head is because I don't flag it. Okay. But Hunter Green, if you flag it in your left, you're a daddy. Yes. You flag it in your right, you're a boy. Mm-hmm. Leather boy. Yes. On Leather Daddy. So Hunter Green, I know that because I flag it. Okay. And it's true. Like maybe in a dimly lit nightclub, but this is gay bars at that era. And I feel like they had to have some idea of what these colors, you know. Yeah, but I think it's been expanded upon greatly. Like I think one of the articles I read is like in the original Hanky Code, there were 10 colors. And the colors are... All fairly different, really distinct, from, distinct right. from each other. I think like the closest pair of colors is like light blue and dark blue. I think nowadays it is a much more expanded list, and it's a, a little bit too expansive in my opinion. Yes, um, and there's also I think that there's also like a lot of attempts to like make like fun or like parody hanky codes. Yeah. So a lot of these gets a, get adopted from like parody things or um, more niche lists. For example. I found out how to flag for tea service. Wait, I'm confused. Like so if you tea service, like serving somebody tea? Serving someone tea. Okay, continue. So if you wanted to give tea service, you could argue like that's a type of topping because mm-hmm. you're doing the action. Yeah. So a lot of the times people might flag that in their left. Yeah. And it's argued like what topping and bottoming necessarily means. But for me, if I wanted to give tea service, I would consider myself kind of topping in tea service. Yeah. So I would probably flag it in my left, but it is a doily. You can flag a doily (laughs) to flag for tea service. So maybe that's a little silly, and I agree it's a little bit silly, but it's fun. Like, now we have this kind of creative license, right? I I will admit, the only one that I can remember, if I were to flag for anything, this is probably the thing I would flag for, is houndstooth. Do you know what houndstooth is? Houndstooth. Is this for biting? Yes. And I knew that one without looking. (laughs) Well, it is in the name. I mean, yes, it is. But I also know people who flag it. Uh, Okay. But yes, if you look up the hanky code, and we might link to this in the show notes, Mm -hmm. like one of the uh, expanded hanky codes. I'm sure when we look online, there will be plenty of examples for us to pull from. Uh, You can go see like all the various ways that you can flag. And people, well, I don't think it is that pervasive in the kink scene nowadays people still do flag people do flag and it has been adopted by people of all different gender identities and sexualities so it's no longer exclusively gay male or lesbian Mm -hmm. communities that are using it it's much more broad now and i feel like there's sort of this divide where boot for like boot blacking and things like the hanky code for me tie me back to my queer heritage And that's important to me. I always felt very powerfully affected when people talked about, like, the AIDS epidemic. And so in this way, it kind of feels personal. And I feel like I'm I'm kind of honoring those who went before me by being able to express my queerness and kinkiness in this modern leather culture. 
And I think it's especially honoring those who are sort of written out of history, like women and people of color. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the the kink community at large doesn't lag a whole lot. Yeah. But there are still pockets of the kink community and the leather community where that intersects, where flagging the hanky code is still a tradition. Mm-hmm. And some people might flag without even knowing the origins of where flagging comes from. Yeah. Or the, the hanky code. And that's fine, too. I mean, I, I remember seeing people flagging and, you know, I kind of knew the basics of it. It was signifying something, some sort of kinky activity. Again, I've not gone into depth about what the various colors of the hanky code mean, uh, besides the one, the only one that I'd probably flag if I ever decided to flag for hanky code. So I knew it was a thing. I didn't know where the thing came from. I did. I So before I really knew what the hanky code was, it was like very early on in my boot blacking career. It was like the first summer mm-hmm. that I was in the scene. And this is a story of the first handkerchief that I ever got. Okay. Uh, it was a gift to me. Yeah. And it was just a dark blue handkerchief. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know anything about the hanky code, like what the individual colors meant. I did know that people, I saw people put them in their pockets. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just like throw this in my back left pocket <laughs> and I'll just wear it when I boot black. Okay. So I was like, this is a very nice gesture. And someone comes up to the stand one day and I'm flagging this dark blue hanky in my left back pocket. And he goes, ha, that's a, it's an interesting place for that hanky. And I'm like, oh yeah, it was a gift from a friend, you know? And he's like, oh yeah. So he sits down in my chair, you know, we start talking and, you know, if you see me, you know, I'm kind of short and I'm very servicey, subby kind of person from, especially at that time. Yeah. And nobody knew me as, you know, anything other than just like a service sub boot black kind of person. So after we get done, he just, you know, keeps remarking on, you know, how fascinating this placement is of this hanky. And so I was like, yeah, you know, whatever it's, you know, and I went to somebody after the fact and I was like, this person kept commenting on how interesting this placement of this hanky was. And I I didn't really understand why. Yeah. And they were like, that's because you're flagging topping and anal sex. (laughs) So, you know, as an AFAB person who is very bottomy normally, this was a surprising flag (laughs) that I didn't know that I was conveying. I know. That's what strap-ons are for, right? Strap-ons are there. Um, You know, I've been thinking about getting myself one of those very expensive, almost prosthetic penises. Okay. Because I think that that could be fun. Because for me, strap-on, it just, like, it feels too much like it's not a part of me. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, that doesn't interest me. But yeah, so people do know what the hanky code means, and people will comment on your... On the placement of your hanky. On the placement of your hanky. So, you know, be be aware of what you're flagging. Yes. Well, now I feel like we have to put a link to a hanky code. Yes, and I actually, I sent the picture of a vintage okay. kind of hanky code that's a little bit older. So it only has like 20 okay. colors on it or something. All right. So speaking of gay leather culture, I did a little bit of research about sort of where gay leather culture came from. And I just want to emphasize the point again that it is difficult to, to pin down the exact, I mean, it's already difficult to try to pick out, like, why sort of these social movements start. And it's especially difficult in queer history because, again, these are sort of oppressed minority. This is an oppressed minority where they're not open about their their queerness because if they are, they're going to be either suppressed by the police or violently attacked. 
So from what I could tell, the gay leather culture starts in the late 1940s after World War II. There seems to be sort of an intersection between people who want to sort of emulate military discipline. It also seems to be maybe as partially a reaction to the gay stereotypes of the time, which is that of a very effeminate man. And they wanted to sort of push back against that by sort of performing a very hyper-masculinity. Yes. And also, it's fair to say this is also partially like a form of protection. Like, there were motorcycle clubs starting. Motorcycle people are considered to be very tough. So if you emulate a motorcycle club, you are less worried about people messing with you. Yes, and in fact, I had, uh, when I was an undergrad, I did an extensive research project on leather history. So I know a lot about this subject. And when gay leather culture was sort of coming back, they did try to actually integrate sort of with the motorcycle culture altogether. There was mm -hmm. like kind of that push in some pockets. And, but they, there was a rejection, you know, because the motorcycle community was not entirely accepting or welcoming of gay men. Yes. So there was at one point, you know, kind of a split between the motorcycle community and the gay leather culture. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I think there was like a gay motorcycle club that actually came about, you know, around this time. Yeah. So Also, I think it served as a way to indicate I'm into leather. Right. So I am, because I'm into leather, I'm interested in this kind of gay sex, which is, you know, yes. the more sort of bondage, discipline, uh, focused gay sex. Right. And not all of the people in the gay community at the time were embracing of even this leather culture. There was a lot of reactions even from the, the gay community itself that were like, oh no, we don't participate in that. That's perverse. That's kinky. That's in a very derogatory way. So actually yeah. there was pushback even from people within the gay community that were like, no, 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 we don't do that. Yeah. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that we're talking about several different communities you know this is before the days of the internet before the days of even like great telephone communication i think back then you still would like call like you know india 249 when you like dialed your phone <laughs> so we're talking about several different club several different subcultures that eventually sort of came together right, over exactly. time it was Yes. A lot of people like to think they can just pinpoint, oh, this was the time and the place and the reason. But yeah. you can't. So that's definitely a hard part of all of this. And, you know, while it was a culture that was focused, seems to be focused around gay men, there are also leather women. Basically, I think my hypothesis is that around the same time that the gay male leather culture was coming up, there probably were leather women. Okay. But that because of societal things of the time and again those combinations of things that lead to how communities are formed yeah we don't really see publicly see the rise of leather women until a little bit after yeah so definitely that's true but i think probably existed and something else that i think that we should note is that we're largely talking about the leather culture in the united states this okay is definitely united states leather culture mm -hmm. which then seems to be imported into other countries Again, I've only done a little bit of research about this, but it seems like the countries that got the leather culture imported to it were countries that there are large populations of U.S. military in. So countries like Germany, Amsterdam, Britain are all countries that after World War II, there was a large population of U.S. troops afterwards. So that's just a theory on my right. part. I don't have any evidence to really back that up. Right. Yeah, so... I was always curious about how leather culture might have formed in other cultures and communities and countries. Mm -hmm. 
that's something that we're not really able to speak to very well. That adds a whole other element to pinning down history. Yeah. So. So I think it's also important to note that for some people define kink as leather. And so for them, it is not a kink subculture. It is a leather subculture that has kink within it. Right. I have a little bit of a different opinion than that because I'm not particularly into the leather look or lifestyle. Even when I am performing masculine, I do not perform to that sort of, I don't want to say this, like butch hyper-masculine. When I want to dress up for a kink event, I'm usually dressing up in like a vest and a tie and a button-down shirt. But, you know, there are whole leather events which are solely devoted to celebrating leather culture. And they're pretty mainstream at this point. There's a there's one in Chicago, I believe, called the International Mr. Leather Competition, which is a hotel takeover. We should probably define what a hotel takeover is. I mean... I mean, it's self-descriptive. Self-descriptive. But a hotel takeover is when an event takes over an entire hotel and the hotel is not open to the public. So usually you can dress more outrageously at a hotel takeover than at a regular kink event, which is only, you know, taking over the convention part of a hotel. So there's an international Mr. Leather competition that takes place in Chicago. There's an international Miss Leather competition, which I believe takes place in New York, but I'm blanking on that right now. Let me double check. International Miss Leather. There's the International Miss Leather, and there's International Miss Leather Boot Black. Well, yes, technically the International Mr. Leather is also... Okay, it's also... Okay, so it says held annually. I don't see where the location is here. Imsol and Imsbaba. Imsbaba? International Miss Boot Black. Ah, okay. (laughs) I was going to say, I've never heard of a place called Imsbaba. (laughs) I don't see exactly. All right, but these are... Fairly well-known competitions. They are hotel takeovers, and they're sort of pageant competitions, if that yes. makes sense. So it's sort of like beauty pageants, except you're sort of trying to exemplify leather culture instead of feminine culture. Is that how I want to say it? No, that's not. It's not even. Well, here's something else. I think you're getting a little bit confused about some things. Okay. So definitely there's a. Just like there was a split between like kind of the motorcycle culture and the leather culture, yeah. there was also an equal split between the kink culture and the leather culture. So while a lot of people within the leather culture do identify as kinky to some degree, and some kink people might identify as being leather, yeah, they're definitely not entirely overla- overlapping spheres at all anymore. No. And then the second thing too is that like, yes, it might have started out with kind of this macho, masculine, or, like, hyper-masculine focus. For the most part, like, current leather culture has fully embraced femininity back into its identity. And so a lot of, you know, leather daddies, leather boys, they might be femme. Um, And same thing with leather women. They don't have to be just butch lesbians. Um, They're also very feminine leather women. So I think that you kind of have to just also understand that the leather culture has also kind of grown and has reintegrated a lot of these other things i mean it i mean to yes it has to a certain extent but i still think that they because i've definitely like when i was doing research on this there are definitely like recent articles talking about like how some of leather culture was sort of accepting of more femme uh presenting people but how there's also some pushback against that so it's not like you know i love the kink community 
And I think the kink community is very progressive, but I also recognize that there are problems within the kink community. Yeah, of course there's problems within the kink community, and I think that it's not necessarily accepted everywhere, but I, a lot of leather women that I know are very femme. Mm-hmm. I will say more so than the masculine versus feminine thing within the leather community, I see a lot more pushback against trans people. And in fact, I think it was International Mr. Bootblack or International Mr. Leather, one of these ones that was a couple years ago, had decided to ban trans men mm-hmm. from participating, I yeah. believe. And they got an instant pushback, fortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, from personal experience, I've talked, uh, I've, I've worked a, uh, a, a gay, a gay male event, and I was talking with the, the vendors, who, some of the kinky vendors that come to, like, sell products at this gay male event. And they're talking about how, like, their club, you know, there was a big essentially like fight going on in their club at that point about whether to accept trans men or not this is a couple years ago and i'm going to be honest i haven't talked to those people since then so i don't know what the result of that was but there's definitely sort of this i don't want to phrase this there's this tension about who to let into these spaces which have usually been predominated by males yes and also this is very common in all of gay culture actually um, not just leather gay male culture, but also just in, in gay bars, you know, like trans men are not often welcome for mm-hmm. trans guys. Um, and like, what about non-binary people? So like this adds a whole other complication with leather culture. Yeah. So I would say, yes, there is still some pushback against femininity, but a lot of these amazing leather women that you are seeing are really claiming femme their femme identities Mm -hmm. and i think that they are making strides and i think even within the gay male leather culture there are more and more people who are embracing that kind of effeminence male self Mm -hmm. and that there seems to be more pushback against trans people Uh, yes but these competitions are very mainstream now in fact i would point the listeners to a podcast which is on my list of podcasts that I eventually plan on listening to called The Competition, which follows a contestant during the International Mr. Leather competition, I think, two years ago. That sounds really interesting. I have not actually listened to it because, again, it is on my list of podcasts I eventually plan on listening to. But it sounds interesting, and I'll include a link in the show notes for that. So I think that's about it for our podcast which I think means it's time for us to sign off. Or do you have something else to say? Well, I think we can just sort of maybe wrap up a little bit because, yeah, I definitely want to say there are still problems within the kink community and then the leather community in regards to who's welcome. Yes. And so even though leather started out as this, you know, embrace your sexuality, embrace your perverse you know, interest, embrace your queerness. Uh It started out that way, and yet it still excluded people and continues to exclude people for gender, gender performance, gender expression, all of that. So I think that this is a good reminder that we should kind of go back to the roots and really look at what was Leather trying to say and how can we do better now that we are modernizing, you know, Leather culture. Okay. Do you have our sign-off? No, because I didn't write up these show notes. (laughs) I did send them to you, and you did, in fact, write up some of the show notes, G. 
you were uh, on the show notes adding things. Yes, yes. All right. Yes, yes. All right. This is G. This is M. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KNP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com, or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. Motherfucker! Right on time. Time, watch, joke, get it? I think we just have to let it play out. Why don't we throw it out? Yeah, can you throw it out? I'm gonna throw it out. We're not having luck today. We're we're not having good luck today. It's on your bed now. Okay. Alright, where was I? Being oppressed. I'm just gonna start over. Um <laughs> <laughs>